Amen, indeed. Let's pray together. Father God, we do want to bring you praise. We can do that because you are love and life and holy and true. God, your promises are yes and amen. They are true. The things you have said you will do. The things you have told us we have, we can take hold of. We can stand firmly on your promises, on who you are, because you have said so. Father God, as we dig into your word now, we pray that you would help us to see that a little more clearly. That as we seek to understand your heart and your will, that you will make it clear to us and that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive and be transformed. Father God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. But turn or tap over. We're going to read this passage together. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus says this, he says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. While Lazarus received bad things. But now he is in comfort here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. Do you believe in the power of the word of God? Do you believe in the power of scripture 
to change someone's heart? How does the Spirit of God move in the lives of people? And how do we see truth change someone's heart, change our hearts? This morning we're going to be continuing our journey through the parables of Jesus, studying and exploring these kingdom stories. The ways that Jesus was trying to explain and describe his Father and his kingdom to us. The stories that he told us to help us see these infinite and eternal realities, these huge, mysterious ideas, all described in these simple ways. Jesus is is amazing, and his ability to connect our hearts and minds to eternity is incredible. It's profound. It's, it's exciting. And it's more than a little confusing. And that's the incredible beauty of these stories. It's not just simple, straightforward lessons. These are stories that call us to sit to listen, to spend time with them. It's not just about the simple words and and message. It's about relationship. These, These stories are an invitation to sit with our Father and allow Him to speak to us, to minister to us. For His Spirit to work in us to identify areas of hurt and need and sin in our lives and bring us into new life and healing and wholeness in him all in these simple stories last week pastor scott led us through the parable of the mustard seed and we were reminded of this exact thing of of the ways the kingdom starts from something so small planted in our hearts and it grows And brings life as it branches into every part of our being and our world. These parables, they act themselves out in our lives. And in our hearts as we read and study and pray through them. As we allow God to speak through them. It's beautiful. It's confusing. It's it's mysterious. And sometimes more so than others, the parable we're looking at today, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's a weird one. It's a weird story. It's unique in the parables of Jesus in a number of ways. It's the only parable we have where a character is given a name. And it's not even clear why he chose that name. It deals with themes of of eternal destiny in ways more vivid than Jesus does anywhere else. It's more descriptive in those things than he is in other places. And the lesson he's incorporating is different than the focus he often has in his parables. It's a weird one. 
And while we're trying to say consistently that we need to spend time in these parables to come back to them during the week and read through them ourselves and let the Spirit speak and mold and shape our hearts, this one is particularly important because there's so much going on here and we're going to explore some things in in this story today, but I hope that you'll spend some time with this this week with God. And let him speak to your heart the truths that are held in this story. But this parable comes in in a long string of of Jesus' teachings that Luke has recorded for us here. And we don't exactly know the context of this specific story. A couple of chapters ago, he was at a Pharisee's house for a party. And then he was with some crowds who were following him. Or maybe they were at the house Two, and Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they might be there too. These may all be connected moments or not. It's not clear, but Luke is collecting a number of teachers' teachings together in this, in this section, whether Jesus was telling them all at the same time or not. And they talk about the kingdom and about money, talks about service and charity, and there's a line about divorce right in the middle of all of this. And as weird as this parable is, it's not half as weird as the one at the beginning of chapter 16. Don't read that one. I mean, of course, read that one. But Jesus there is describing a manager who was wasting his master's resources. And he knows he's going to be fired. So he basically calls all the people who owe his master money. And he cuts all their debts in half, further undermining his master's business. And Jesus says, nice. What? I, and he's talking about the way the world treats each other, but also kind of not. I, I don't even know. Read it if you dare. But let God speak to you about that one because Jesus really gets into the weeds there. But this story opens with Jesus describing a scene that we would maybe expect as it follows some of the ideas that he's talked about, the dangers of wealth, the cost of selfishness. These are things that he talked about quite a bit. And, these, and things that, especially in our very wealthy, comfortable culture, we need to pay extremely close attention to. Jesus is talking about us. But Jesus begins this teaching back in verse 14 where he's addressing the Pharisees that were there and they were not happy about something, some of the things that he had been saying. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That's a pretty big line. What people, we, us, we're people, value highly is detestable in God's sight. Are we trying to see things like God does? 
Or are we asking him to agree with us? And then he emphasizes the power and weight of God's law. And he goes on to tell them this story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, this seems obvious at first. Jesus is going to talk about selfishness and wealth, about caring for the poor and equality and the kingdom of God. And he paints this stark and extreme picture of what he calls extreme wealth, luxury every day, purple robes, fine linen, and extreme poverty with more detail than we see in other places, longing for scraps, covered with sores, the dogs licking him. This parable is unique. Jesus doesn't usually do this. But here he does, and he's trying to lead the people somewhere, but not where they're thinking. Because suddenly, we're in the afterlife. The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is in comfort here. And you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. Nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Both of the people in this story pass away. And Jesus again shows us that in this life we don't understand things the way God does. Angels carried Lazarus to Abraham's side while Jesus says the rich man died and was buried. And what he's telling us is that in the world they did not see these two men the same way. Lazarus wasn't buried. And in Jewish culture, that was a grave dishonor. But the rich man was. And he would have had a huge funeral celebration with everyone saying how wonderful he was and how important he was. But Lazarus, in this life, received no honor. No recognition, no acknowledgement. He wasn't even buried. No one to mourn him on earth. But God cared for him. God saw him. God loved him. 
and his own angels carried him to glory. We need to check our perspective. And the way we see and understand people, do we see them with God's eyes? Or do we evaluate people with worldly eyes? Because the story only gets harder from here. Lazarus goes to heaven to enjoy comfort and love and the presence of God, but the rich man is in Hades or hell or is in torment. He says he is in agony. And he craves even just a drop of water to cool his tongue, even for a moment. And why is he there? Some great sin or or evil life? In your life, you received your good things. While Lazarus received bad things. That's it. That's the explanation. It doesn't say he was cruel or mean or dishonest or evil. We can obviously understand that he wasn't generous in caring for Lazarus right at his gate. But is that such a big deal? I mean, this was a rich man in a city. I'm sure there were lots of poor people all around. What was he supposed to do? But God sees things differently than we do. Let that sink in. This man's sin was having good things in life. While the people around him had bad things. That was the attitude and life that brought the judgment of God upon him. We have this warped view of sin. That it's big bad things we do. Murder, stealing, adultery. And we forgive and excuse ourselves so easily for things that we don't think are a big deal. Nah, maybe it's not great, but it's not a big deal. I'm a good person. God does not see things like we do. God does not see people like we do. And we need to understand sin is a heart position. Actions flow out of it, but it's a broken perspective, not just bad behavior. It's a life off course, not focused on and submitted to God. Not desiring his leadership and mission and kingdom above everything, desiring him. Not just bad things we do. Sin matters. And we have to understand it because there are real justice and real consequences. And this man is experiencing that reality now and he wants to save his family. 
to save others from this terrible fate. And so he calls out to Abraham. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone goes from the dead to them, they will repent. And he said to them, If you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We are spiritual beings. And this life is not what it seems. The things we care about, the things we worry about, they aren't the things that matter. And the things that matter, we don't see. The parable portrays the stubborn nature of sin. Jesus is telling them what is coming. That very miracle is going to happen. He is going to rise from the dead, proving who and what he is and that what he has said is true. And he is telling them that he knows full well that even then it will not be enough. It will not be enough to convince people of the truth of his words and their need of God's grace. If their spirit hasn't seen the truth in the scriptures, if they won't listen to what God has said, miracles won't make a difference. That's the power of scripture. That's why we need to sit and rest and meditate and let God's work, God's word work in our hearts and our minds to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul said. To let the Spirit of God speak that truth to us and to let it transform and change us. And it's a powerful reminder that the battle we are in is not a physical or intellectual or cultural battle. It's a spiritual battle in our world and within ourselves. In the past, I spent a great deal of time watching different debates between Christians like John Knox and William Lane Craig and some of the greatest secular minds in the world, people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, brilliant minds, geniuses, incredibly accomplished individuals. And I was continually frustrated that they wouldn't even respond to the arguments laid out by the theists. They would just respond by saying, there's just no evidence God exists. 
that any of this is true. When the Christian scholars had just spent half an hour laying out carefully, logically laid out arguments that showed evidence as to why we can believe these things with confidence, logically, systematically, it was so frustrating. How could they not see? And then their own arguments were contradictory and illogical. How could they dismiss the truth that these Christian scholars were presenting? And I eventually came to understand that it was because I was treating this like an intellectual argument. When the reality is that this is a spiritual battle. We are spiritual beings. It's not that they wouldn't see the truth of God. It's that they couldn't. Their hearts were hard. Their eyes were closed. And and maybe they closed them themselves. But even if a miracle occurred in front of them, it wouldn't change anything. Because change wasn't possible through the mind. Is only possible through the Spirit. The Spirit is the only thing that can change someone's heart, and as they are open to the reality of their sin and the truth of God, His love, His grace, His power, His glory. And it's the only thing that can change ours. The word of God, the truth of God working in our hearts to show us who he is and transform us into the image of Jesus. Miracles and powerful moments are amazing and exciting. God is at work and he is doing incredible things, filling our minds and hearts with his truth. But it's the word of God. In his word, spending time with him building our foundation of of life and understanding on him that leads us to what we truly need. New, abundant, transformed life. A life where we see the world, where we see people like God does. The rich man might have been a good man in many ways, but he wasn't a godly man. And that's all that matters. God's word is good. And it's life. It's alive and we need it. Because it leads us to Jesus and shows us what God's heart really is. This morning we're going to celebrate communion together, the truest display of God's heart. His love and grace and mercy and desire for relationship with us. And as we do that, I want us to reflect on how God has changed you. How his word is transforming you. How you are responding to the truth of the gospel because Jesus came not just to forgive us but to transform us. 
are you being transformed? Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is coming. His promises are true, and the life that he offers is waiting for you. I'm going to invite Pastor Scott to come up. We're going to take this time. And again, if you are here as an individual, make your way forward. But if you're here with your family or or as a couple, uh, send one of you up and Pastor Scott will uh, give you the bread and you can take the cup yourself and make your way back to your seats. But let's take this time and meditate on the truth of God's word and the power it has to transform our lives as we trust in the work of God of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we say thank you again. Thank you for your word that you have spoken. That we can know you. God, you are mysterious and confusing and far beyond us, but you haven't left us with nothing. You have given us your word and your spirit that we can know you and be in relationship with you, that we can walk intimately with you. Help us to be in step with you. And we praise you and thank you for the gift of your son that makes that possible. As we take this together now, we pray, Father, that you would speak, that we would be ready to hear in Jesus' name. Amen.